0: Sherry Foster talks about the impact this case had on her.
1: But you, you know, you always have cases as a police. I mean, I've got several that have impacted me. This one, this one, hit home. Um, again, I think more so the not just because of what I went through, but uh, the admiration I had for the kids that came forward that were scared and that came forward at knowing there would be some kind of retribution or consequence or whatever. It may have just been the shame that they had to face. And the fact that they could do that and be brave, my hat's off to them.
0: Welcome to Game of Crimes. Did you get any cooperation from the Mexican authorities on this? Did they help out uh, with any search warrants or anything at all?
1: Some. There was one time we go to a bank. I went in as a translator, me and Ron go in, and we, go, we had a search warrant for a deposit uh, bank, uh, deposit box, and um, <laughs> and he had gotten there before us. It was pretty obvious that Petter knew what was going on, and so he had gotten there before us and either bribed him or whatever because um, they threatened to throw us in jail, and... <laughs> and i i remember us talking about it because you know i was i was not an idiot and i realized that bad stuff happened to people in foreign jails especially as a female um but luckily that did not happen we did have some great cooperation from some other people uh uh some of the families that we met that helped us and were that hosted us and uh gave us information um but you know, Petter was uh, later sentenced to, I think he got 12 years to serve eight. Um, and I'd-
0: We'll talk about that at the end because I want to I save kind of the conclusion because, you know, what we want to do is walk people through this case. Um, give us, kind of tell us what the area was like. You say it's Hildalgo or some of those areas. What were the houses like? Did they blend in with others? Were these things that he bought and renovated? Um, you know, wh- what made them a, quote, experience or a place that you would want to take kids to, you know, for therapy?
1: I don't remember there being anything extraordinary about him except maybe the shower that he had built, but no, they were just they were in residential areas i i i often wondered and I'm not sure that we ever knew why he picked pachuca i would if I had to hazard a guess in my experience because it was a poor area
0: and any money he had he could have a, he could have uh you know um you know uh, extra influence in that area disproportionate influence because he's bringing money down there.
1: I, I I think that's probably it. Money talks, and, and, and no matter what country you're in, um, but especially if it's a poor country like that. And so, I'm I'm sure based on some some talks with with Marty and Ron, he presented. Petter, I mean pedophiles and and predators are very very good at presenting a a wonderful face to to the public. Um, or putting on, you know, uh, working undercover, if you will, hiding the, the monstrous space behind a mask that everybody would like. And I'm sure he was a lot like maybe Pablo Escobar. He was a Robin Hood to to some of these people, would give him money, build a house, give them money for a restaurant or whatever, um, anything to keep his secret um, on why he was bringing these kids down there or taking those kids down there. So... Um, well-
0: on your trip down there, how long how long were you guys in country in Mexico? Was it just one time, multiple times, or just the one time?
1: I went twice. We went once, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, for a couple of days. And then I want to say there was an earthquake that happened in Mexico City between the first and second time. And the reason I remember going um, and I, we stayed a couple of weeks is because at the time I was in an undercover uh, in a case um in my my hometown now, uh, working undercover and and j p was like, "You know, you need to get back and work, you know and uh, but but they needed me, and I wanted to be there, and so we went back. I want to say we stayed a couple of weeks down there and 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 worked our butts off interviewing people, trying to get people to cooperate, um, doing whatever search warrants we could. Um, And then I think Marty may have gone back another time. I know he went to Canada or, yeah, to Canada and or or they went to New Jersey. I mean, this guy had contacts everywhere and he would take the kids, you know, different places.
0: See, there's another strategy behind that, too, you know, right, because we've seen this happen, especially in serial cases, whether it's serial homicides, serial assaults, stuff like that. Look, one of the challenges law enforcement has always had is sharing information. That was one of my big projects down at DOJ. You cross the state line, the chances of connecting the dots becomes, excuse me, much more difficult, right? So by going to Mexico, by going to Canada, by going to New Jersey, other places, you've, he just what he did was, he, that was an intentional, I think, strategy of his, is to spread it out to make it harder to connect the dots of what was going yeah. on.
1: Well, and, and one of the things, too, that kind of, I think infuriates me and most people is in a child molestation case. And and the incest is a, is a great example of this. um, Mabel, his wife, Louis Petter's wife, Marty actually charged her with failure to report because one of the kids said that he would go home with, with, with Petter and be lying under the blanket. He and Petter would be lying under the blanket and, you know, doing whatever Petter was doing to him while she was cooking supper. So she was very aware of all of this. And,
0: you know. I mean, this had to just give you, uh, I mean, just shades of a nightmare to go, here we are another adult in a position of authority, not only abusing, but somebody has the power to stop it and report it. And they choose not to.
2: How do you describe somebody like that? Holy cow!
1: Well, I mean, she, to me, she's she's a she's complicit. She's an enabler, and she's as guilty as he is. Because one, as a mother, as a woman, I cannot even imagine. I mean, I I can tell you that. I uh, I didn't want to have kids for a while because I was afraid, you know, they say breeder abusers breed abusers. And and I would I would be damned if I was going to do that. So, I you know, I wanted to break that cycle. But I cannot even imagine allowing my husband to do that. I mean, it just I, I just right. don't understand it.
2: Just sick. It's sick. It's like it's similar to there's another person that's in the media right now. You know, this being accused of an enabler for somebody who may have, or may not have committed suicide in prison. But it just makes you wonder what the hell – what's wrong with their brains up here that they think that's okay? Well,
0: it's like my Christmas ornament. It didn't hang itself either. So, um, you know, we're <laughs> talking about Jeffrey <laughs> Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. But that's hey, the I'm only
2: thing. I'm being here. Just how
0: yeah, look. I mean, that's one. That's well, trust me. This, this guy, no matter how you look at it, he – we'll talk about Epstein later. Piece of shit. But um, – But the the whole point was this. I mean, this had to uh, almost—I don't want to say because I can't speak for you—but it it was—it's like it's almost like here we go again. I mean, you almost see the cycle of abuse and the way people do it and the way they get away with it. And whether or not she goes, oh well, I was just no. Again, it goes back to your point. You can make a choice. You can choose to cover it up, or you can choose to report it. Was was she a licensed professional like Potter was? Uh, Was you know, um, or was she just just a a wife? You know, um, working at home or at the office.
1: I don't think so. I I think she may have played a role in Anna Wakey, uh, maybe kept books or something. I I don't know, but I don't think so. Well, see, the reason I
0: was asking is the failure to report, right? So she must have had some kind of official position with the hospital because then some state law, it seems, would have triggered is that if you're in a position, right, you have to report it. Because I'm going to – I mean, I have no words for this. I mean – here's a shock. The dude is old. He's dead now. He died in 2018. He's one of the people, when you hear the rest of the story, there'll be people following me out to dig the son of a bitch up, shoot him, and then bury him again because that's how bad this shit was.
2: And you you mentioned he had children. He and his wife had children.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Lewis Jr., I think is one of them. I don't know who the other one, uh, if there were any more, but um, I think they had a um, adopted... I don't know if he was ever adopted. I think he had... And I don't know if Marty told me this or somebody uh, told me that he had adopted something son that was a quadriplegic, um, that I think the rumor was that he was also being abused.
0: Well, but it's also cover for him, too, to say what a great guy he is. Look, he adopted a quadriplegic, you know, and that's, that's the other thing, too, you use to provide cover and to basically, you know— um, push back on people to say oh, oh, I can't do this. Look at this. I have a an adopted son who's a quadriplegic. You see this all the time. It's just a way for them to make you feel uncomfortable about questioning their sincerity.
1: Well, and you're talking about I mean, you said something Morgan that's true. You know, any victim of anything has trust issues. And as a child growing up, and you know your your mom and dad are supposed to be the people that take care of you. They they protect you. Um, and when you don't have that safety net or you don't have that feeling, you know, it, it can be very disconcerting in the world. And then to realize that the man that you parents have sent you to to get help is doing something even worse or similar or whatever i mean i admire all the victims that have come forward and finally said hey this is not right because believe me it takes a lot of courage to speak up Um, because especially when you know that there'll be some consequences and on something like this for these kids to to finally come forward and tell Marty or the sheriff or whoever or me, this is what happened. Um, So
0: let's kind of go backwards just a little bit, because I want to kind of, you know, as we logically follow this. So at what point do you think uh, Potter became or Petter? I guess it's Petter, right? P-O-E-T-T-E-R. Petter became aware of the investigation, and do you know how he became aware? Was there some kids talking, or did you serve search warrants on him? What what caused him to go down there and bribe the people to keep you from getting access?
1: Um, I don't know that he actually went down there. I think he may have just made a couple phone calls to some of his contacts and said, hey, not for nothing, but you might want to <laughs> help me. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. There were search warrants that were um, conducted, uh, once the, the it got out, uh, if I remember, Petter removed himself as the board of directors or the chairman of the, whatever you call it, the director, and somebody else took the place, his place, because the, I think the board realized that, oh, crap, you know, we're getting this is in the news. We're losing sponsors. Uh, I, I believe Marty even said that um, Coca-Cola had one time been a bit advocate or a sponsor for Anawakee, and they pulled back, obviously.
0: But, you know, you mentioned something interesting in the timeline. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has got a great timeline of everything that goes on. So, But in July of 86, he resigns as the uh, board chairman, but remains the executive director of Anna Wakey. But then in mid-August is when the investigation starts. Uh, The Douglas County Sheriff's Office and GBI began examining allegations of patient abuse. So it sounds like they knew something was going on or there was something happening for him to resign, you know, as the board chairman. But he still remains executive director. So they must have had some inkling something was happening before the actual official investigation began.
1: Well, I think the people started coming forward. I remember, and Marty tells a story of Sheriff Lee, Earl Lee, um, <clears throat> getting a call from a kid um, at 2 a.m., I think it was. And he wanted to talk. And I, the sheriff at the time said, OK, it didn't matter what time it is. I want to hear this story because, uh, Marty said, you could not find a better advocate for rape victims or uh, child molestation victims or whatever than Sheriff Lee and and so he interviewed the kid um, I think maybe Ron Shacks or somebody else was with him but people started talking and things started coming out and I think too what happened um, if I remember correctly because we didn't go down there till around 87 things had started progressing so fast and it was like a snowball and then when people started coming forward and then some of the parents got involved people started taking their kids out of Anna Wakey um, then, you know, it was hard to hide what was going on. And, and, and even though he was politically connected, and I want to say the guy that took over from him was also, uh, somebody had been politically connected. Um, Peter still had a, had a role, I guess, in Anna Wakey. Um, and it, but after we went down to Mexico and we came back and then he was indicted uh, and then ultimately sentenced, um, then, I, then I didn't have anything else to do with the case other than following it in the news. And, and, uh,
0: but, but during the time that you were involved in this, too, I mean, it's, uh, you went down to Mexico, like you said, a couple of times. What else did you do in terms of the investigation um, while it was up in Georgia as well, too? Were you pulled in um, on additional things?
1: Not so much because uh, everybody spoke English, so um, and I and I was at the drug squad then, and um, I mean they could TDY to another location, and um, but Marty and him had it under control. But I but I remember saying, and I remember having a conversation with Marty about my background to some extent, and so he realized that this case had really impacted me. Um, you know, we're taught. As cops, we are all so macho, and it's hard for us to ask for help. I think it's even more so for men, because you guys, men, are taught to be the strong one, and uh, the women are the allegedly the weaker sex. Because we all oh, know that's not true. Um, but I, one night, I remember crying about the informant's story because he was telling the story. And thinking how brave, how brave you must be and how foolish you must feel. Because I know that feeling to be duped. Um, but you can't blame yourself. You—that That is one thing I tell victims all the time, and I've done it. You are not to blame. And even though the world, society tries to make... Um, Prostitutes or women that are raped feel like they did something wrong by what they wore, what they said, whatever. Um, I mean, I've even had a guy in an interview say to me that she teased me so I knew she wanted it because she wore a short skirt.
0: And, and let me tell you, one of the times that I basically had to throw up in my mouth and just suck it up and move on, I was actually interviewing a guy that... Um, uh, he spoke he spoke English good enough, but a Hispanic couple, he's a boyfriend living with a mom who had an eleven year old daughter, and she had came home and he was fondling her digital penetration is is what it was called in the statute. and we bring him in for the interview, and it's one of those things you know, you kind of. He's trying to deflect and say, oh, it wasn't me, whatever. And I, you know, one of the techniques, and I don't want to give too much stuff away, but you look at him and go, you know, I understand, you know, these 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, they are far more mature than they were back in. So she probably came on to you, didn't she? And you have to say things like that because you have to give him a reason to admit, yeah, yeah, that's what it was, because he thinks it's a brilliant legal defense. She came on to me. And it's like, but, you know, you my daughter, you know, I got I got kids, you know, and it's like you just want to throw up in your mouth, but at the same time, you're going, you know what? I'm going to get you, you son of a bitch, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to play to your ego, I'm going to play to your story, and let you hang yourself, which is what he did. And I will tell you, one of the best psychological ops who ran on this guy, and we thought it was just a pure bullshit play, uh, my buddy Larry Watson was my partner. Um at the time. And so I had him dress up in a white lab coat. And when the guy came in for the interview, he came in with a sterile swab and water, said, we're just going to swab your hands. Because the mother had told us first, before he came down, he was washing his hands and everything, because he knew. He knew that what she had seen. So we're thinking, we'll just bullshit him. you know, We'll rub rub the swab on him and put it in the bag and send it in, just kind of like a prop. And we did, we sent it in, but, you know, we get the guy, he admits enough, we convict him. Well, like most state, you know, Bureau of Investigation agencies are way behind on uh, getting their stuff analyzed. After the guy pleads and he's convicted, we get the results back on that swab. And guess what? They found what's called nucleated cells on that swab. We actually found physical evidence from the molestation. And we thought it was just a pure bullshit, you know, just we're going to, you know, you know, mess with the guy's head, but it, it, it every now and then it actually works out. But that's the point is, you know, it's just when you, when you hear stuff like this, you just, man, it's all you can do sometimes with your professional. You just want to, there's two sides of you. One is the professional. The other side is, hey, just unleash the beast. I just want to reach across the table, throttle this guy and save the taxpayers a lot of money. I don't know if you've ever had that thought. Probably not, Sherry, because you're a nice person, but me, I may have had that thought a couple times.
1: Oh, no, that's, that, that's, no, you're wrong, I have. and and you know, in some of the um, there was a, a case I worked where I was called in again as a translator, and the guy had uh, killed a girl, she had told him she would get him uh, give him sex if, she, if he would buy her some coke, so she, he bought her Coke and she said no, and then he beat her to death with a uh, weight bar that you do uh, the, you know the curls yeah, curls with and beat the hell out of her hog her, than he had sex with her in the kitchen and interviewing him he just he just he said it yes I did I had sex with her and um, because I knew she would fight me if she was alive so I killed her first I mean it was like just nonchalant whatever and I'm like I had I, I had I literally walked out of the room I said I'll be right back to the investigator I was with and I'm like I mean you know we're not inhuman cops are human and it is hard uh when ray statsney was killed in 1988 in in atlanta i was called in as a translator for uh, the the brother of the guy that had killed him uh, ray, and, and
0: tell us who ray is yeah who's ray
1: ray statsney was a dea agent in the atlanta office great 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 guy great agent um and i'm i'm, I'm pretty sure in the year 1988 he was murdered or he was shot by, during an undercover deal um he lived for a little bit afterwards um but the night he was shot they arrested he was buying cocaine um if i remember correctly and don't i don't know if i'm 100 percent on he had given the takedown signal but before the guys could get to him um the guy shot him and and uh he went to the hospital and and subsequently died from his injuries but um I was called into Trent to interview one of the, the brother of the guy that shot Ray, because he was down the road a little bit. And I think maybe even had some of the cocaine in his car. There was a kid in the car, but, but I remember being told Sherry, this is what's happened. And, this is an agent you know, but you have to put aside your personal feelings and do your job. And he wasn't being, the the supervisor wasn't being rude. He was telling me because, as he would tell anybody, I guess, it's really hard to sit across to someone that you know just had something to do with, with shooting someone that you like and respect or love and being a professional, but that's what you do.
0: You you almost have to be schizophrenic. You have to have that beast on one side, but that has to stay leashed. On the other side, you've got to be very clinical because at the end of the day, and I think Murphy even talked about this with uh, the guys that shot your partner, Kevin, or some of the other guys, even when you catch them, there is no ass beating going on. There's no ass weapon going on as much as you want, because you know what you want more than anything else? You want this son of a bitch convicted. You want them to go to jail, and you do not want to be the person that provides the excuse that gets them out of being convicted, and that's, that's, part of the, the whole thing that goes into it. Even though, you know, when I know you're sitting there and you're going, I know what I want to happen to you, but you put on the happy face, you give them their happy meal. And my job now is to get a confession out of
2: you. Yeah. And that's what, that's what that thin blue line is all about. That's what makes us the good guys and then the bad guys. But going back to, um, uh, where, you know, the victim is telling you his story, I mean that had to bring back so many bad memories and bad feelings for you, Sherry. I mean, you know, how do you deal with that? I'm, I'm not sure I could.
1: I think you'll understand when I say this that I'm a person that I mean I feel a lot. I most of the time wear my heart on the sleeve, but in a situation, I'm gold. It's only afterwards that I fall apart. Um, I mean, having guns pulled on you or whatever. I'm cool as a cucumber, but 10 minutes later, I'm like, holy crap, why did I choose Changing this Change Changing your underwear
0: and wondering, you know, how far up your colon it went. We've all had those sphincter moments, yeah.
1: And I remember when the, the kid was talking to us about it, I'm thinking in my head, I'm listening and hearing what he's saying. It was only afterwards that it hit me that I could have said, I've been there. Maybe not exactly in the position you were because the guy that uh, the men that molested me were family members of and friends I guess of my mother, but I have definitely know where you're coming from and and i and i I think it gives people that have been there and again everyone has a story so you don't know when you're hearing a story or when you're telling a story to someone what their background is they may can relate to you in a way that you would never think and not say a word um it is not something that you talk about. It is not something I talk about. My husband is probably the only person that knows the details of, any, of everything. Because even today at 59 years of age, I am ashamed. And... It is a hard thing for victims to get over. So my admiration for this kid and for all of the people in the Anawake Hospital case that came forward is immense. That you, you took a chance, you stepped forward, and you said, this is what that son of a bitch did to me.
0: Well, and it made it tougher for boys too, because now you're talking about, boy, you had sex with a man with one leg, you know, uh, and, and it, you know, they become, and that, the shame becomes a tool for uh, manipulation and control because you can say, well, what if people found out? You know, like you were saying, he's becomes very good at manipulating. Let's talk about the scope of this too. So you, you, you've been to Mexico twice, right? Um, what, what was it, what was there anything down there that was able to be used in uh, when they filed charges later other than interviews? uh, Did you find any physical evidence? Was there anything that provide of evidentiary value uh, for the investigation?
1: I don't know the answer to that. I want to say yes, um, because I know Customs was involved and there were some, some warrants, but I don't think that he, I'm pretty sure he didn't lose the property. We didn't seize the property. Um, and i, I want to say that maybe even they 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 continued to own the property so i i don't know i know that when he was convicted um i think it i think i said he was he got 12 years to serve aid and he served his 8 years and got out um but i don't remember the the details of what he was was charged with and what we found in mexico i know that there was um some other things that marty and found and and new jersey and some other states that um i want to say that they had something to do with arizona maybe um i mean like you said they the sky was strategic and getting the kids away and going on trips um he definitely knew what he was doing but to 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 say that we found something that was used. I don't know the answer to that. I know that there were lawsuits later.
0: Um, Oh, yeah, there's a bunch. And that's the thing, too. But you go to Arizona, New Jersey, right? We got all these great trips. It's like you going to Spain, right? Hey, you get to go to Spain, right? And a lot of these kids have never been anywhere. And yeah, what the other thing I feel bad for, too? Like, say, it's the parents, like you say, when they found out, when they find out later, that this is what I put my kid in, then the kid, then the I'm sure a lot of the parents felt guilty, like I did this to you. I thought I was helping you. Um, let's kind of bring this because I do want to talk a little bit about some of your other escapades. But um, this whole thing, um, it, it it actually was pretty fast because when I look at the timeline here, the chronology, um, the uh, the investigation starts in mid August, but by October. So you you're basically talking about just a couple months. He's in, he ends up being charged. When you heard about the charges, you heard about the indictments, you know, did that trigger anything to you like a sense of relief? It's like this guy's finally getting what's coming to him?
1: Yeah, um I've always been the kind of person that and I and I, I hold to this that there's a there's two times in your career that you can you should celebrate. One is when you put the handcuffs on the guy, but the other time and the most important time is when they're sentenced. Um, because people do get acquitted um, or found not guilty or whatever. But I, I'm pretty sure I had a conversation with Marty that said, yes, uh, we got him. Um, although looking back now, I guess at the time, eight years was a pretty bad sentence. But right now, I don't think that's enough. I mean, you know, if you take a account for every kid and then – if you do account for every occasion, I mean, I would think he would, if you've got life in prison, it would be enough. But he, like you said, he died, I think he was 98 years old.
0: Yeah, son of a bitch lived way too long. Let me just recount a little bit of this because this may be a little bit of news to you. So, like I said, the Atlanta Journal Constitution had a great readout on it. So, um, He's removed from his own seat, like I said, in, in July of 86. In August is when the investigation begins. In October, he's charged by your friend, the Douglas uh, County Sheriff Earl Lee, three counts of sodomy, one count of cruelty to children, one count of simple battery. He's believed he's in Mexico. Guess what? They also charged his chauffeur, a guy named uh, Carl Maxwell Moore, is also charged with sodomy. October... Uh, Petter surrenders to authorities. DHR, the Department of uh, Human uh, Resources uh, in Aniwaki, begins their investigation. Six victims file uh, suit charging of facility officials, including Potter and Moore, with racketeering. Deputies arrest, James C. Womack, the co-director of therapy, charging him with numerous counts of sodomy. This guy has got a ring of people. Daniel Herrera, an Annawaki employee charged with cruelty to children. Second group of alleged victims sued. Here's the thing, too. Pot- Petter is charged with stealing twenty nine thousand uh, five hundred from Annawaki funds to buy land for personal use in Mexico. So they got him on that. He is uh, a former group leader charged with uh, sodomizing young males. So... Here's the thing. Here's what it boils down to. If February 27th, 1987. And th- the reason I'm reading this out to you folks, think about all of these charges and what his sense ends up being. He is indicted on 22 more sodomy counts from 1971. Petter and his wife, Mabel, and son-in-law, James Henry Evans, are charged with failure to report child abuse. By now, there are 10 criminal defendants in this case. This just wasn't him. Um, they take over. He, he pleads. Here's what he pleads guilty to. In April of 8th of 1988, he pleads guilty to 19 counts of sodomy with former patients. He's only sentenced to eight years. And these are juveniles. I mean, some of them obviously are males because they try. he tried to get some of this overturned. Um, but it's just this... People think it was just him. He got so many people involved in this, from his chauffeur to other employees. I mean, I'm just aghast, I'm at a loss for words, which is rare, but it's like eight years for everything this guy, he got 12 years, but only had to serve eight.
2: He should have gotten eight years, he should have gotten eight years per Per, count to run run. consecutively
0: and die in prison. Agreed.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I think too, if I remember correctly, there was, when he originally was arrested, the judge had set an incredibly high bond, which was like a million dollars, at that time was a really high bond. And people in the community came together and bonded him
0: out. That's what it put here. He people uh, he was able to bond out basically after five weeks because friends came together and cobbled together his one million dollar bond.
1: So it yeah, it was uh, I mean, I I, I think I said this to y'all and I may have said it before. I think there's a special place in hell for people that uh, hurt children and animals and elderly people. I hope so anyway
0: you've worked a lot of stuff, and I want to spend a little time now talking about some of the other stuff you worked, uh, because you're actually writing a book. You're writing a series of books. But we don't want to say too much and give it away, but we will talk about that. But out of all the cases you worked in your career, why does this one impact you the way it does? Why why does this one stand out? Because most of the time when we talk with people, they're usually the lead agent, you know, or the case agent, or, you know, they, you know, you were brought into this, but you're brought into this because of your Spanish speaking abilities, because you're going to Mexico. But I think the thing too is that this was this was so much reflected. It you know, there but for the grace of God go I. This could have been you, and it was you. You know, to a certain extent. How does this case to today? I mean, affect you the way you think about things, the way you um, the things you work on.
1: Well, and and again, I wasn't the case agent, and I take no credit for any of the the work that was done. Marty did a phenomenal job, Douglas County, all the other agents. But, you know, it affected me, obviously, one, because I uh, had a similar background, but also I think that it really jades you. You become jaded as a police officer when you start seeing cases like this, that people in authority are abusing you and that, you know, there's... Epstein is just an example. There are judges that and lawyers and police officers, people that are in a position of what I believe is a position of trust, that take advantage of that position and and, and you become jaded. So it, it, it everything you look at from here on out, you look at it through not rose color glasses, but I mean almost muddy I don't know what you would call Jaundice,
0: it. Jaundice. I mean, everything's jaundiced. Everything's, you know, been tainted.
1: But you, you know, you always have cases as a police. I mean, I've got several that have impacted me. This one, this one hit home. Um, again, I think more so the not just because of what I went through, but uh, the admiration I had for the kids that came forward that were scared and that came forward at knowing there would be some kind of retribution or consequence or whatever it may have just been the shame that they had to face and the fact that they could do that and be brave my hats off to them Um, i mean victims victims are admirable Uh, when they when they finally reach that point they stand up to them
2: You know, know, you're exactly right. The shame should fall on the people that perpetrated the crime that betrayed the the trust of these young children who like, you you know, we talked about just a few minutes ago that mom and dad are supposed to be. That's your rock. That's your safe haven. That's the people that, you know, will never lie to you that are always there for you. And, you know, in in your case, you know, I mean, God bless you, Sherry, for what you went through. And uh, I hope I certainly hope that you haven't. I'm I'm guessing you probably do still have some shame and embarrassment from this, but to to have the guts to come on here and tell this story. And, um, I, I, you know, you were a hero in my eyes to start with, and <laughs> you're even much, much further up there now. It's, it's phenomenal that, that you're sharing this and we're not even done yet. That's the cool thing about this. I mean, we're just scratching the surface on you.
1: I'm not a hero, but let me say one thing. When I was growing up, my mother um, had a mantra every morning and and as crazy as it sounds was, you were fat, ugly, and stupid. Fat, ugly, and stupid. So I grew up hearing those words every day. And I can tell you, and I think people in the audience will relate to this, you have to be careful what you say to your children because they learn, it literally, we're like little recorders and we keep that in our mind. And if you tell your child, um, like the the movie the Help. I loved it because you are worth something, you're beautiful, you're worth If you tell kids that, they will become that. If you tell a kid that they're fat, ugly and stupid, they will believe that their entire life. and I do. I still have problems. I have fought it and fought it and fought it. and I say that to say this. You have to be careful what you say to other people, defendants, whatever, your kids, whoever it is, because sometimes the verbal abuse is far worse than the physical abuse.
2: Right, right. It's, my wife tells all our granddaughters, you know, you're special, you're smart, and you're important. And we may, she, well, she doesn't make them, but she encourages them to repeat that. And it's, it's reiterated to them on a regular basis So that's what they know. You're muted, Morgan.
0: How can I be muted again? This is a trick you're playing on me, Murph. I know he doesn't want me talking. <laughs> I finally found that special button. <laughs> my, yeah, that special button. Well, what I'm doing is because um, I'm using a feature of this, which is I'm using the space bar to unmute myself because we got somebody... It always happens, right? Somebody decides to work on a deck or do construction, right? When we're recording, this was like bang, bang, bang. So I, I, uh, I moved my mouse and it undid the... Anyway, I say that to say this, is that... Bones heal, you know, things like that heal. But the words that you tell people, that's the stuff they remember 20 years later, 30 years later, they they remember those phrases that, you know, um, you just remember things like that. And so when I would investigate cases like this, to your point, Sherry, you'd hear these kids saying, well, my mom always told me this. She told me I was going to get pregnant when I was 16. And then they end up being pregnant when they're 16. And then they're shocked. You just told your it's self fulfilling prophecy. If you tell your kids this is what you're going to be, this is you you guide them toward, and they're all their decisions, their whole worldview is based upon. Well, I'm supposed to be pregnant when I'm 16, so I guess I'll start having sex at 14 or 15. You know, and, and this is, and, and you know, I just anyway, we could do a whole thing about that. But look, you had done you had done some fantastic things. We wanted to tell this story. This is kind of a little different because we're going to tell just a couple quick stories here. But this one was so impactful when we heard it, Murph and I said, we we got to get this one out because this one, um, it just, it's huge for a lot of reasons. But um, you went on from uh, GBI, you decided the Georgia bill of invest, by the way, we got to talk real quickly too about our mutual friend, Nathan Katz. I think I've told other folks this first before too, but first time I met him at some law enforcement training, we're all hanging around and I had never really heard a good deep Southern Georgia accent in a long time. And he says... My name is Nathan Katz if I'm a special agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation that is spelled J O J A. You know, and he was <laughs> he was so funny and just 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 that southern genteel, you know gentleman. Yeah.
2: He, he's That's a hilarious character too.
1: Yeah, he he and uh, my husband and I and uh a bunch of other guys were all on the same drug squad together. So imagine when we were doing a deal, it—oh uh, my God! And especially if it didn't go, you know, we used to call it go, a goat rope. We'd go out there, and the CI wouldn't show up, or the bad guy would come with a, you know, instead of you know cocaine, he'd bring in soap or whatever, which has happened to me. Um, but Nathan, Nathan's a great guy, and uh, we we had a good squad and worked. We worked our butts off. There's a lot of dope in Atlanta. <laughs> Steve can tell you that from being Wait the. Wait a minute! I'm
0: shocked. Really? There is. You got you got drugs in Atlanta? Yes. Oh yeah. Scary.
1: But but there's even more out in those suburbs. I mean, in the rural towns. And
2: uh, hey, well, did did you guys so on, on the goat rope cases, which is actually called a goat fuck? But did you guys have the trophy? So whoever had the goat rope case got the goat trophy on their desk
1: no you know i think we i think as a dea agent we did that but with gbi whoever whoever did it had to buy the chicken wings because we always (laughs) had to go to crickets or or uh mostly crickets downtown across from the varsity to eat chicken wings afterwards and um you know we would uh Whoever lost, or whoever screwed that, or whosever deal it was, would would buy the chicken wings. And notoriously, they would not do it. Of course, they oh I forgot my wallet or something, you know. But.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I had the dinosaur arms. Oh, I can't reach my wallet. And you know, I left my wallet. We had a guy do that. I won't say where, but we had a guy used to do that. You'd show up and um, you know, it'd be his turn to pay. Oh hey, can somebody cover this for me? I forgot my wallet. So we once so the next time he did that a couple times, I said, no guys, here's what we're gonna do. So we all got in front of him in line. We're just going down like a little cafeteria thing. And we all said, hey, the last guy's going to pay. And so when he got to there, he said, you're paying. We'd all left. We'd all taken our food. We left this son of a bitch with the ticket for the meals. Like, no, you get to pay, pay this time. Yeah, pay back. It's
2: funny you mentioned the varsity because that brings back so many good memories. You know, And you don't know this morning. Sherry set uh, Javier and I up to speak at UGA over in Athens. And uh, Connie, Connie had gone with us. She was there with us. And and uh, where did we go to eat while we were in Athens? We, the we stopped varsity. in at the Varsity. That's right.
0: My aunt and uncle, who have passed away, both uh, they moved from Ohio down to Athens. So they grew up for a long time uh, down there in Athens. They they were big Bulldog fans, um, which was a little comfort to them in the later parts of their life. But um,
1: that's sweet. I think Javier took about five cans of uh, chili home, didn't he?
2: He did. <laughs> <laughs> like I never seen. Like, damn,
1: I didn't know it's like, but it, yes, yeah, great. I'll uh, I'll box some up, Morgan, and send it to you for Christmas. You'll have a couple of chili dogs and uh, some uh, orange crush and uh, onion rings.
0: I have a feeling I'm going to be able to light the fire without a match. <laughs> so uh. yes, you will. Yes, you will. <laughs>
2: That's whatever whenever we fly through Atlanta Airport, we always work in time to eat at the varsity there. Well
0: let me tell you what, if you ever go through Salina, Kansas, you gotta stop at the Cozy Inn. If you want the best little burgers, these are better than everybody thinks they're White Castle. No. Cozy Inn. Cozy burgers. Just go to Cozy Burgers in Salina, Kansas. When I was a Salina cop, you could tell who'd been in the Cozy because they cook these hamburgers by piling onions. You, you only get them one way. There are no cheeseburgers at the Cozy. You know, it's it's onions and it's a pickle, you know, and a, just a, a dollop of ketchup on there. And if you were in that place when they're cooking it and they're piling it on with those onions, oh my God, uh, you could, you walk out, you, you had to take your clothes to the dry cleaner four <laughs> times to get that onion smell out of there, but it is so good. But I digress. I, I wanted to ask you about this. One of the things we talked about on the pre-call, and it's very interesting. You, congratulations, by the way, you're working with a publisher. You're working on a series of books now, three editor, of them.
1: An editor, not a publisher yet. An
0: editor. Uh, well, 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 don't worry. You, when you become famous on this podcast, <laughs> and you will, based upon this story, we will have you an editor. We'll have you a TV uh, deal, an agent, and a chauffeur by the uh, time this wow, is over.
1: That's what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: Yeah, just as long as it ain't Murphy from California. <laughs> yeah,
2: and, you know. and let me just say this: You remember we we interviewed v- Lou Velozi from uh, ATF, worked undercover storefront operations. I spoke with him yesterday, and some uh, a uh, company had just bought the rights to his book, a film company. So it's it's you know, going to be in the makings of a movie here soon. We hope. So we're not bullshitting. We're actually we launch people, people here. into
0: the stratosphere, <laughs> and
2: some of the folks have
0: books. In fact, that's one of the things I'm on the hook for by the end of the year is to put together a list of all the books from all the people who've been on. So we got some great stuff. So Sherry, let's talk about this. So let's let's kind of set the context too. How long are you at GBI before you went to uh, DEA? Five years. So you can't keep a job. One year at Winder, didn't stay there for very long. Five years at GBI. Now you got to go to DEA after they lifted the hiring freeze.
1: Yeah. 1990 and uh, graduated from Quantico. Uh, going back, this is what I meant, going back to being overweight. I have never been a skinny girl. And um, so Quantico was a challenge. The, the shuttle run, the push-ups, the sit-ups, they were fine. But that long, that two-mile run, that kicked my butt. And I was literally the slowest person in Quantico history. Um I think at the time and I even have a picture of me crossing the finish line you had to run we, girls had to run 2 miles in 1845 and I did it in 1843 literally and I go. remember the my, my my group of guys that that uh, Bob Mazer was in my class you all know him Oh yeah. Um, yeah in fact he was our president or spokesman uh John Gazzara I had a great class um him. <laughs> And, uh, um, well, you know,
2: as a matter of fact, uh, is going to be on the show next year. He's the guy from The Infiltrator,
1: phenomenal guy. He's a great guy. But they were like, Go, Jerry, go. But I was not a fast runner, but I still got that badge. I'll tell you a side story. I found out later that uh, one of the employees at Quantico made a bet with my counselors, class because we all had class counselors that I wouldn't make it. And when I found that out, uh, after I had made it, because if you want me to not do, if you want me to do something, tell me I'm not going to do it because I'll sure as hell show you that I will do it because, you know, I'm, I, I believe I've, I've done things against the odds. And so when I found this out, one of my counselors told me I was freaking mad as hell. And I, I remember going into the gym and then this person is standing there and I literally <laughs> screamed, I'm up. A- Freaking DEA agent, special agent. I don't think
0: that was word. I don't think that was the word you used. That's not
1: the word I used. No, that's not the word I used. And I, but I, you know, it just it burned me up because again, I, you know, they people in Quantico, it's tough. Somebody, it's a tough school. Shooting was hard, which I had no problem with the shooting part. Um, although I did have to go from the Weaver to isosceles, which was a hard thing because if you're an old school cop, you know that Weaver is a the way you were taught and then DEA teaches you the isosceles straight on shooting and um it's a little bit tough but but I did make it and um I graduated in 91 and came back to Atlanta so and that was rare for that time because as Steve remembers I think Constantine was the administrator and he didn't believe you should go back to where you came from um nor did some of the ASACs I worked for, but um, but I did. I was blessed, and I got back to group, uh, started in group one, then went to group two under Paul Marconi, who was a legend in DEA.
0: So, again, here we are with all the acronyms. Group, what's what's the difference between group one and group two?
1: Well, at the time, Miguel Acuna was the, the boss for group one. I think it was just territories that we were assigned. Um, and... And uh, ironically, I had started a case as a GBI agent, working the undercover and everything. And uh, it was an OCDF case, which is Organized Crime Drug Enforcement
0: Task Force. See, you can be trained. I had to, I've worked with Murph for like 28 episodes <laughs> now, finally getting him there.
2: <laughs> I'm not there yet. You just wait. I did
1: say, I did explain what an OCDF task force is, where all the yes, agencies come together and work on a case. And... Uh, JP and I had a case uh, that started in our little town here in Cedartown. Uh, I was working undercover, and then uh, graduated from Quantico and picked the case back up as the DEA agent, as the case agent, and then we went to trial.
0: Talking about coming full circle, <laughs> you know, start off state, finishes the Fed on the same case, which means that the case took a hell of a long time to investigate, right?
1: It was a long case. It was a we had twenty people we arrested. Um, uh i think we had 55 that we arrested all because it was a multi-state case um and then you know eventually people uh pled out it was we went to trial on two different cases if i remember correctly and uh in rome in front of judge harold murphy who is by far the best federal judge ever um and um I started at like I said as an undercover i, I had an in, we had an informant that introduced me to the aunt of a Cuban drug dealer out of Miami um, his name was Roberto Cavazon and he moved up to Cedartown this little this little podunk town um, and realized he could make a hell of a lot of money selling cocaine. And I think back then, Miami, Steve, you probably can correct me, back in the 80s, cocaine in Miami was twenty to 25,000 a key. Um, but the farther you got north, obviously, it became 45, 50,000. And, um, and Cabazon was killing it up here. And um, we ended up, I went undercover as uh, wanting to learn Spanish. And that was how I got in, uh, into the organization, that I wanted to learn Spanish. And the defendant at the time, Maria Venable, was going to teach me Spanish. And then, of course, the conversation started, uh, turned to drugs. And I said, oh, I'd, I'd love to buy some cocaine. And my brother and I have a landscaping company. And, and that was it. So I uh, stayed undercover for quite a while. Um And in fact, that's when I went to Mexico in the middle of the undercover investigation. And then I came back and uh, and then we arrested everyone. And um, it takes a while. As you know, the federal system doesn't move fast. And um, when I became a DEA agent, I picked that case and another case up, both out of Cedartown. Um, And then we went to uh, court and everybody either pled guilty or was found guilty um, on all charges.
0: Well, let's talk about your amazing career, because you got to go to a few countries, you did a few things, but that has led into... We're going to back into your career by talking about the books that you're writing, because they're based upon things that you did in your career. So let's talk about this trilogy that you have planned, that you're working with an editor right now, soon to be a publisher, of uh, movie, rights. So it'll be on HBO. It'll be a streaming show, be more wildly popular than Narcos ever was, all that good <laughs> stuff. So We're going to make go, it. girl.
1: Preach it. Speak <laughs> it into existence, Morgan. I like that. I like there that. There
2: you go. There you go. So
0: let's, let's talk about So let's talk about this trilogy because it's based upon your experience as a DEA agent. So give us the premise, What's the book about? I'm gonna I'm going I'm taking a wild guess here. Is that the protagonist, the f- the uh, character in the book, is going to be a female DEA agent? Wow. Am I am I right? You am can I be right?
1: Psychic. Um, and and I do want to talk about what I do. I do other things besides just just write. I do have a full time job, but um, yes, I have been wanting to write for years. And and honestly, uh, I've a, I've been asked to write about my childhood and about my story um, by people that think that I have a story to tell. And and I told Steve, I'm not a hero. I am not the people that you have on like the, the LA deputy, um, Kevin Stevens, those are the real heroes. I'm just a person that I believe, um, was very lucky and blessed and, and was a fighter. I'm a fighter. I'm a, I'm a, a person that believes that, if you want something, you got to work for it, and you got to work hard because things don't just come to you. Um, well,
2: and that's the, that's the true sign of a hero because they don't admit they're a hero. They don't recognize themselves as a hero. So you keep going the way you think, and I'll keep going the way I think. <laughs> I know who you are.
1: But this book, uh, the first book, well, there, there's a trilogy. I hope there's more, but I, for sure, this is a mystery wrapped in a thriller, and I, I do believe that it's uh, it's going to be very timely and relevant. Um, I guess at the heart of it, it's a mystery. Um, I don't really know all the jargon of the industry, but, but it is fast paced and I hope that people will, will love it and stay up reading it. Um, but it's a fictional account of real life events and the first book, um, uh, the, the protagonist is, uh, hot mess, <laughs> a lady, a DEA agent, uh, that you shockingly, had, uh, uh, Said, um, who is based in Atlanta, but she's she has worked in Lima, Peru, which I was stationed for five years. And
0: and what's the name of what's the name of this fictional DEA agent?
1: Uh, her name is Gabriela Hart. Um, and so, uh, why the
0: Spanish? Is, is the Spanish a throwback to uh, the Spanish in the countries you worked at, or how did you come up with the name?
1: Uh, well, my son's name, my youngest son's name, is Gabriel, and he was born in Peru, and so it is uh, kind of a tribute to him. Um, And the name heart comes from a good friend of mine um, had a niece who had, um, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, heterotoxy. It's where the the organs are in like on the wrong side of the body, I think it is, or they're misplaced in the body. And um, she had a little girl whose heart was not in the right place and only lived for three years. Her name was Mallory. Um, and as a tribute to her, I named the character Hart, spelled H-A-R-T-T. Um, well, that's
2: very nice. Very nice. Well,
1: and you know, the book is again, it's fiction, and it's a it's a story about a, a DEA, a female DEA agent, assigned in Lima, who has had um, come in contact with some bad guys, uh, one particular bad guy trafficker in Lima, who um, killed her boyfriend, and it's a. I guess you could say it's a mystery to see how she gets back at him or he gets back at her. I don't want to give away too much because I have learned that to keep him on the edge. Um, But I am using my experience and and some other people's experience. And in the book, though, I talk a lot about uh, uh, domestic abuse because I'm on the women's shelter here and um, a big believer in fighting for women. Uh, And I talk about autism because a friend of mine has a son that's autistic, and um, I want to help erase the stigma and, uh, of kids that have autism, and, and I want to erase the stigma of mental illness altogether, because it is not a crime, it is not a weakness to have a mental illness, and I think that's very important that people hear that, um, and then i touch on a couple of different issues, but it's a, I think it's a great book. Uh, the first book is set in Peru. The second is set in Colombia and the third is set in Mexico, all based on cases that I worked.
0: So were you in all those places?
1: I was it yes, I was in all those places Two as a DEA agent. Then of course, Mexico is the child molestation case. Um, then I've been to Mexico a hundred times uh, traveling, but um, I was in Cartagena, Colombia for five years, um, I thought I would really would, wouldn't have a job to do after Steve and Javier were there and they arrested Escobar, but there are other drug dealers in the country.
2: Well, as soon as we left country, you know, the place went to hell in a handbasket <laughs> again. I mean, we straightened it up. What the heck? Thank God for Chris Feistel taking down the
0: Cali cartel, because right. otherwise you That's wouldn't right. have had season two. You wouldn't have had the third season, or you know, Marcos. <laughs> That's, right. That's,
1: That's right. right. <laughs> Chris is a great guy too. So, but Cartagena uh, was great.
0: So actually they're thrillers. They're more than they're mysteries, because mysteries are like who done right? We all know who done it. So yours is a thriller. Mystery which, wrapped uh, in a
1: thriller is the way I'm yes. describing it because Mystery
0: Wrapped in a Thriller. Very good. Uh the premise for the cases though come out of real things. So kind of tell us what is the what is the major premise, you know, for each book that you're working on. Because one of them one of them actually is based upon um cocaine being hidden inside uh, counterfeit cigarettes, right?
1: Right. Um Yes, this is a case out of Arequipa, Peru, which is the southern part of Peru. Um, Peru's a beautiful country, one of my favorite, favorite places. The fruit is absolutely great if you've never been there. They're definitely a a culinary um, experience, but... um, Uh, A truck of cigarettes, counterfeit cigarettes, was confiscated. A truck was seized, and inside the the cigarettes was six tons of cocaine. Now, six tons is nothing now in, in Peru, but back then it was a pretty good haul. Um, and the bad guy was Peruvian, but he was working with some Colombians and Mexicans. And so the case—
0: And this is the real story that you're fictionalizing, right? So there was a real six-ton load taken off. We just want to make sure folks understand that's not the—you're not fictionalizing the account. That That's actually what really happened.
1: Everything—there's uh, some fiction. I, I'll, I'll quote Murphy. When Murphy was talking about the narcos, he said that, you know, like, maybe— 50% is real and the rest is Hollywood. Um, but you got to give the reader something, you know, like right. H- Javier was made out to look like a, you know. <laughs>
2: slut. He
0: was a, male. a man He was a man, a man, he was. He was a man pimp.
1: He, he was, was a man slut. But the real Javier is not like that. He's a good, good guy. And, um, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. No,
2: that's oh, wait wait a minute. You know the Narcos same JP? Is true. <laughs> That's the one part that's true about the whole show. I hope Bobby's. Yeah, listening. and his
0: close affiliation with Lost Peppies and you know, and everything yeah. else is all- crazy. Murphy, Murphy God. throwing a guy out of a helicopter—that's all true too.
1: Well I even think he said in one of the I think we did a law enforcement Stephen and Marty uh Stephen uh Javi did a law enforcement presentation, which is a little bit different than the public one. <laughs> but he even said that he had been accused of sleeping with everybody in the in the yeah. uh in the case. <laughs> um but that wasn't true. Um but yeah, the uh the the truck was seized and so we uh we started investigating and Uh, The case took me everywhere. I went to Ecuador, um, went to uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. um, Following up, and it's a fan. It's a phenomenal case. I really don't want to give it all away because people will not buy the book.
2: Right. Um,
1: But there's a lot based on it, uh, the the true life, and I use people that I know. I uh, my my uh, husband, the character, his her partner in the book is based on him. Because um, we've worked a lot of good cases together, and um, a couple of uh, AUSAs that I work with, uh, assistant US, uh, United States attorneys are in it.
0: There you go. So proud of you. So proud of you. I'm
1: learning. I'm, qu- I'm a quicker learn, uh, quicker, l- Quick. I can't even say. But anyway, I learn quicker than You're a than quick study. Yeah, you're yeah, a quick thank study. you. The second book is a money laundering case that, um, in Lima, I was a special agent and I got to do a lot of cool stuff, go in the jungle, go to jungle school, a lot of great stuff. Had a phenomenal office uh, with some great leadership. Uh, Terry Parham was my ASAC. Um, Ross- Good man. Russ Jerkins was my GS. We had a great, great group of people. Um, And then I got promoted to to a GS. So when I was in Columbia, (laughs) I was a supervisor I loved it, but I didn't have as much fun as I did as an agent, right, Steve?
2: Yeah, tell us what a GS those is.
1: though. Oh, oh, wow! Group supervisor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, because in some parts of the government, it's you know, it's GS. It's a it's a grade as well too. So you can be a GS thirteen, a GS fourteen. Yeah. So we're clarifying, we're edific- edifying the audience. Yes, go ahead. But you're, you're exactly
2: right. The, being an agent is the best job. being it is. You, know, <laughs> you know, this is the wrong thing to say, but when you're a GS, I used to think. When I was an agent, man, I could get myself in trouble. Now I've got like twelve other people helping me get in trouble.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think I said this before. I was a well, I got promoted, went to Montgomery, Alabama, which Alabama's a whole different country too. So I've actually been in several countries. Um, I was in Montgomery. I had a great. Well,
0: you know group. what LA is? LA is Lower, Lower Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I had a great task force group over there. Some of the best agents I've ever worked with, and. Um, was the first time I was a supervisor and I loved it. And then later became the resident agent in charge, the RAC. Um, and, uh, then I went to Cartagena where I was a group supervisor and, and I had a phenomenal group. My group was, uh, the money laundry group, I guess you could say. We did a lot of long-term cases.
0: What years were you in Columbia?
1: I uh, went in 2008 to 2012, and then I went to headquarters after that, to special operations uh, division and so headquarters.
0: here's the standard question I have to ask of everybody who's been on Columbia, because I was there, Steve was there, you know, obviously JP. So did you, did you go to Bogota?
1: Oh, God. Yes. Once a week, usually.
0: Did you ever eat at Montserrat?
1: I, I want to say yes. because The I restaurant know
0: that- that's on top of the hills, you have to take a cable car, basically, oh, to get up the, to it. Oh,
1: near the monastery? Yeah. The church? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we went up there like our first or second time because when you go into country, you actually stay in, like we stayed in Bogota to check in because you go to the embassy and get your IDs and all that. And then you go to your country, your, well, at the time it was only Cartagena because the, the office used to be in Barranquilla, right? right? And then uh, they moved it to Cartagena.
0: So were they. Did they put you guys up in a hotel or did you stay? Because most of the times I was down there, ran into feds and spooks and stuff. It was always at the Andino Royale there over on Calle Cinco.
1: Yes, but no, we were – when I checked out, we were at the JW Marriott, but it wasn't built uh, when, we, when we first came in. I don't even remember. When we went to Cartagena, we stayed in the Hilton for like almost a month. I mean, until they got housed, until our GLQ was ready, our – Government living quarters was ready, um, and I love the Hilton. I mean, you know, I brought, I had, uh, brought, uh, my middle son Zach was with us, and and. Uh,
0: I mean, what could be better having somebody make your bed every day, clean your room up, clean your mess up? I mean, you get used to it. It's like, wait a minute, I
2: got to make my own bed now. I got to clean my own house. Well oh, forget this. Uh, Connie and I were flying back to Bogota one time when we, you know, just, we had changed planes in Miami, and that was usually a layover. And back then, if you were carrying weapons, you know, you had to identify yourself to the airline and the pilot and fill out the paperwork and all that crap. And then they would introduce you to anyone else carrying a weapon on the plane. And we met Pat Stenkamp, who was an agent who had just been selected to go to Barranquilla, but he was coming to Bogota first, like you just described, for a few weeks. And Pat, you know, he turned out being one of my best friends, still is. But he was really nervous about going to Columbia. Of course, we were, too, the first time we went. So I said, well, where do they have you staying? He's like, I'm not even sure. I think it's a boarding house, but I'm not sure, you know, is that, is that safe? I said, you know what? We live in this beautiful, huge-ass apartment. It's got four bedrooms. Just come and stay with us till it's time for you to transfer up to Barron Key. And that's what he did. And that kind of got to be a norm, you know. You got the, the new guys coming in. You're there for them. You try to help them out. And, and it, it, just as it is in law enforcement. Yeah, because it
0: beats – Beat sleeping with a nine millimeter on your chest the first night you're there, right? Oh,
2: yeah. 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 In a boarding house. With, a, a with an opening <laughs> over the door that anybody that could do a chin-up could climb that into says your security. <laughs> this is a
0: secure facility. Look at this. you got to be taller than Sherry to be able to climb into my apartment, my oh God. Oh, my
2: gosh. <laughs> Welcome to Columbia. But go ahead, Sherry. Sorry to interrupt. It just brings back good no, memories.
1: No, it's, you're, no, you're right about that. But I'll tell you a funny story. When we were going over, uh, you know, we had our diplomatic passports. And, of course, I had a weapon and stuff. Well, I had inadvertently left a magazine in Zach's bag in his uh, <laughs> backpack. So we're going through Cousins Atlanta Airport, and of course they flag it. And Zach is like, what the hell is happening? And I'm like, that's okay, I'm a diplomat, I got this, I got this. And they're like, we don't really give a ass <laughs> if you're a diplomat. And they didn't because Atlanta, they didn't know what a diplomat, you know, they didn't understand that whole thing. I was so embarrassed. Of course, I've never lived that down because my family's, oh, I'm a diplomat, I can take care of this, you know. Um, so, you're trying to get I your mean, kid thrown
2: like, in jail.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks a lot, Mom. I tried that stick too. Coming back through L.A., let me tell you, L.A. Airport. One thing they're good at—they're good at dealing with diplomats. Because I had a dip passport, you know, for some of the stuff I did. And uh, but they don't care. They don't care if you're a diplomat. They don't care if you're a movie star. There's one line for everything. Even w- coming back into Dolas until recently, there used to, there was no separate lines. But you go to the U.K. places like that, they'd have a separate uh, diplomatic line. But the one thing I did learn. This is where I thought, hey, you can't look at these boxes, you know, because I got a diplomatic passport. We're going to Pakistan, and it's like, uh, but they have to be dip- they have to be in diplomatic pouches. Now they can be big, you know, they can be a box, but unless they are designated with the proper paperwork, they can search anything.
2: Yeah, that's and that's a whole other story. I f- I- Later in my career, I still had a DIP passport as a, as a special agent in charge because of some of the pro classified programs we worked on. We flew up, you know, in certain countries. Once you're a diplomat, that didn't give you diplomat diplomatic immunity in all the world. It's just the country you're assigned to. So uh, I was assigned to various countries because of work we were doing, but, you know, flying in, into Canada, and I thought, well, I don't want to stand in this line for 45 minutes. So I whipped out my DIP passport and went up to the window. <laughs> And the guy's like, hey, Skippy, you, you're not a diplomat here. Get your ass back in the line. And I was like, oh, sorry. I just kind of didn't know if that applied here or not. And I started to walk away. He's like, get back up here. I'm going to do it this one time, but don't you ever get in this line again.
0: <laughs> I'm shocked. Canadians are normally nice. Normally, they would have apologized for not being clear enough about the rules. You know, true.
2: That's True. Uh, he he probably he was probably born in the U.S. and then you know immigrated. Yeah, he was probably born, immigrated there.
0: <laughs> but anyway, Sherry, back to back to you though, because I think that was two books, right? What was the third, what's the premise for the third book going to be?
1: Uh, the opioids, uh, Mexico, oh, and yeah. fentanyl, and China, and opioids because and
0: oh, that's right. I gave you reading. I gave you homework. Have you got that book? Have you read that book? I yet have that ordered I told it. You about?
1: Warfare. I sure did. It's not on audio because I looked it up. It. Uh, but I ordered it from Amazon yesterday or Monday afternoon actually so yes I want to read that um, That that is you know if, if, now that I'm retired uh, from DEI I work with the United States Attorney's Office here in Atlanta uh, very blessed to have this job and uh, two things I do I work with Project Safe Neighborhood uh, which is a, a great uh, project and there's some uh, incredibly bright and aggressive assistant U.S. attorneys that Uh, work with Um, and then the other thing is uh, the opioid overdoses Uh, some states uh, some DA's offices don't prosecute uh, for selling drugs to someone that kills them and Georgia has a law, I believe it's called the nine one one Amnesty Law and basically it, it, on its face it's a great law, but it says that if Steve and I are doing drugs together, for example, and we're shared users and he dies and I call nine one one, I can't be prosecuted. Um I think that was originally the intent was so people wouldn't just throw bodies on the side of the road instead of taking them to the ER or something. Um but it also hamstrings law enforcement and the DA's offices from prosecuting. So uh, what we do is we look at, uh, we're very selective and look at people that are dealers that are actually selling the, the fentanyl. Because the fentanyl now is in everything. It's not just opioids. It's in, They put it in meth. They put it in coke. They put it in marijuana. Um, and it is tragic what is happening in our country today And how many kids have lost their lives, how many parents have lost their children to the opioid crisis?
2: You know, just to to put, and I got to put a number on this, because I just did a special for the DEA Educational Foundation the other night with, uh, in conjunction with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. I I love these groups. Uh, I will continue to support them any way I possibly can. But here was one of the statistics that came out of that. Uh, This was a, uh, there's a Zoom presentation, a sort of a webinar, and from May of last year until April of this year, the United States had more than 100,000 overdose deaths from, from uh, legal prescriptions that are being uh, uh, diverted and, and abused to counterfeit medications coming in. You know, and, and here's the other thing, and, and I'm on my soapbox now, guys, so just hang on just a second. You know, it's, we, are the, we, the United States, are the leading consumer country in the world of illegal narcotics, That's a horrible reputation to have. Our country traditionally has been something that would set the example for the rest of the world. This is not an example we want to share. So I love the fact that you're doing a book on that, that's just being addressed. You know, DEA's got some special programs going on right now and and trying to address those issues. But okay, back to, like Morgan says, back to our reputation. Well, no, that's okay. We did that
0: Patreon. Well, we did that, we did that random Patreon. episode where we talked about that. We talked about some of the new things they have found here in the District of Columbia now, uh, isonitazine and protonitazine, which is 10 times more powerful than fentanyl. Can you? It's already scary enough. Now you're talking about something 10 times. That's like saying, I got a nuclear bomb. Well, I got a nuclear bomb that's 10 times more powerful than the one you got. I mean, this is, again, and it goes back to that book. We'll have to have you back on and talk about that and uh, talk about some of these things. But we wanted to let people know that you were... Uh, you were multifaceted. It just wasn't, you know, Winder, Georgia. It just wasn't GBI. I mean, you did a lot of stuff with uh, uh, DEA, and now you're working. You're working on the book. So, um, give us a sense of when the book you think, because uh, you have a you have a goal for Christmas for the rest of this year. What is your goal that we can hold you accountable to?
2: She's looking like you. Like I will strangle you. <laughs>
0: You shouldn't have said anything. You shouldn't have said anything. We remember. what can Mm -hmm. We are your accountability partner, Sherry. What is it we can help you with, be accountable for by December 31st at 1159
1: p.m.? Well, my editor will love this. I'm telling you because I'm sure he's going to listen. Yeah, I hope to have it completely finished. I mean, it's there. I just want to tweak it a bit. Uh, My problem is I'm OCD, and I go back and rewrite and rewrite. and, And he keeps telling me that is not your job. That is my job. Job, you just write the damn story, Um, but to have the first manuscript in, and you know, it takes a. As Steve well knows, I'm learning. It takes a a while to get a book out, but I'm super excited. I've wanted to write a book for years, and I love this character. She, again, she's a hot mess, but she's a real person, and she's. uh, I think people will identify. She's very authentic.
2: Oh yeah, Uh, she's all she's probably grew up in Winder, winder, Georgia. You know.
1: I'm right, well, sure. Yeah. Do you know
2: what? Do you know what CDO is?
1: Well, it can be code enforcement officer, which my husband is, but it also could be something else. That I'm sure is. It's
0: it's OCD in order. If you really have OCD, it's CDO.
1: <laughs> oh Lord, okay.
2: Yeah, and you gave up your whole morning to talk to us, didn't you?
1: <laughs> well, you did say you're the most interesting, but um, we are
2: the.
0: muy Sande. See, sí. see, sí, señora.
1: I want to go back just for one second. On a serious note, though. Um, One of the things that I will tell you that I have learned working with these overdose cases and the parents is as a DEA agent, GBI, DEA, whatever, our job was to put people in jail. Our mission was to stop drug trafficking in and out of this country and to put people in jail. I have really had to change my perspective working with the parents and the victims and to stop looking at the victims as drug users. And I, I, that may sound crazy, but they are victims. Most of the victims that we have started, became addicted because of a doctor prescribing the drug, hydrocodone, Oxycontin, whatever. Um, the movie Dope Sick on Hulu that we discussed is a perfect, perfect example of reality. Because, you know, we got a kid that had a volleyball accident. She took some hydrocodone for her shoulder, and then she became addicted. And, you know, when I first started working dope, heroin was expensive, and heroin was your last resort drug. You did not do heroin unless you were, damn, a hardcore junkie. Now it's nothing. I mean, meth is cheap. Everything has changed so much. Um, People go to heroin because they can't afford the oxy and the hydrocodone. But working with these parents, having now that I am a parent and seeing it, it will break your heart. And I have really had to check myself and be, and be more compassionate when I'm talking to these people because my heart does break for them. And I feel sorry because they will grieve to the day they die because their daughter or their son has, has overdosed. So, I mean, this is a real issue in our country today. Absolutely. That I, if we don't get a hold of or at least try to keep up with, we're going to be in trouble.
2: And let me just add, let me just add one thing on that: is is the counterfeit medications that are coming to the United States are everywhere. Uh, they look exactly, if not better, than the real medication that comes from a legitimate pharmacy. So please encourage your family, yourselves, especially your children. If you're in pain, if it's a headache, if it's a muscle spasm, whatever it is, don't accept anything from somebody that you don't know 100% where it came from. You know, if it's simply a Tylenol, believe it or not, can be counterfeited, and if there's fentanyl in that, you could uh, the result could be an overdose death. So,
0: well, Steve, you made a that's a good point there. You might trust your friend, but do you know where your friend got it from? Oh, I trust Steve, right? I have, but I have no idea. Steve just bought it on a street corner for three bucks a pill, right? And this goes back to that. We're going to have to have a dis- discussion. I think this will be a good episode to have a discussion about because. You know, it, it's not just, you know, I go back and think about one of the cases I worked, I, I know I told this before too, but we were serving search warrants on some drug activities and burglaries going on at pharmacies. And this guy that we had interviewed and stuff, we had hundreds of pill bottles, and that time it was Vicodin, you know, things like that. But you get addicted to that. He had cut off the portion, the top portion of his ring or little finger on his non writing hand so that he could get another prescription for Vicodin. That's how bad this guy was addicted to it. And this is, I mean, we're talking the 90s back then. So I think this is a but again, it goes back to the discussions, right? Um, w- one of the things I saw that uh, the community policing has done that people have done a really great job. Richfield, the city of Dayton, Ohio, has a fantastic philosophy around how they dealt with people. They don't same thing that they you know the prostitutes, the sex workers, they view them as actually the victims of the crime, and it, it's the people that are doing the human trafficking, the sex trafficking, you know, and it's destigmatizing that so that you know most of these people who are involved in it aren't doing it because they're a slut and a whore, you know. They're doing it why because they're broke. They need money. Somebody pimped them out. Somebody found them again, just like uh, Potter did, Petter did with the the kids. They found them when they were vulnerable, and now they're trafficking them. That's what they do. So, uh, uh, hold on before we get going, because this we could wind this up. We could be here another three hours, but it. we can't be. So,
2: you know, well, this is one thing that you and I have discussed, Morgan, is potentially doing an, an episode where with victims exactly and, and you know Sherry and JP set up for Javier to speak in San, in uh, Sandy Springs at that new performing arts center they had a couple years ago and you actually brought a family in who had a son that had passed away or a child that had passed away from an overdose death because of fentanyl or, or opioid addiction whatever it was and it's, we have these other families that we work with on a regular basis when we go to Capitol Hill, we go to the American Legislative Exchange Conference, trying to educate people about counterfeit medications. So I'm saying all this to our listeners. If you're hearing this podcast and you would like to hear an episode on that, please contact us through our website. Through uh, Game of Crimes. Game of
0: Crimes podcast at gmail.com. And go. look, we've already gotten some of those. Those of you guys who are on uh, Game of Crimes uh, are on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We, Steve, we've already gotten messages back on that. I think people do want to hear the story. So, I mean, sure, I think that's... Because, you know, once you hear it from the parent's point of view and you realize, man, it it, it is... Uh... And the other thing, too, is you know, everybody says, well, hopefully this will give them closure. Closure is a myth. There's no such thing as closure. You know, closure is a fiction. Um, you will never, ever forget the fact that your child died. You might get resolution, especially if you can find the person who dealt it. And let me tell you, uh, this happened in Loudoun County. I don't want to give away, people will know uh, if you read the story, but they did end up criminally charging somebody who provided OxyContin to a kid who had just gotten out of drug rehab. And this just wasn't any kid When you saw the place that the kid lived and you saw the wealth of the family, they were probably one of the wealthiest families in Loudoun County. And that's saying a lot, considering Loudoun County is the richest county in the United States for for, for per capita income. This hits at every level of society.
1: And and I was going to say that, you know, I do have um, we've had two convictions here. Uh, with your attorney's office, and and one one guy got five years, one got fifteen years in federal prison, which is great. Um, but but out of all the families I've worked, I've only had one or two families that were drug users themselves. Most of these kids that have died come from phenomenal families, really good salt of the earth, hardworking people that did everything they could to keep their son or daughter or brother or sister clean, and. You know, it's the it's the predators out there that are selling it that make that are making the money that we go after, you know, in charge them with the but for causation. And, you know,
0: what's even more heartbreaking is the fact is that some of these victims, it's the first time they ever took one of those pills. Absolutely. This is not it somebody is. who's just an abuser, and abuser the whole time you go, oh, I could see that coming. It's no, they took one pill one time. And that was it.
1: That is exactly right. A Georgia, my, my youngest is at Georgia Tech and is a, a very bright kid. I mean, I got three kids. Matt, who's a teacher. Is he a rambling wreck? He's a rambling wreck. He's definitely not a Georgia fan. But uh, <laughs> Matt, my oldest, went to University of Georgia, so... Um, he's my favorite. No, I can't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I can't say that. Oh, oh my God. I said that. Oh, you, oh. How
0: much will you pay for us to edit that out?
1: <laughs> oh, a lot. Like, I tell you. And then Zach went to Georgia State and gave it Georgia Tech. But my one of the first cases that I got, I looked at was a kid from Georgia Tech. He graduated, graduated magna cum laude from Georgia Tech, which is a very hard school, if you know anything about tech. Um, and I want to say he graduated in May. He went back in December to his roommate's graduation party, took a pill and died.
2: Unbelievable.
1: I, it... it broke my heart. It was. And and in that case, there's no who got who to get the pill from. Who knows? There was nothing we could do because you really have to identify that source of supply for that particular that particular cause. Uh, and the cause of death. So it broke my heart, but you're right. And, and that's the thing about drugs. It is an equal opportunity Killer. uh, killer.
0: Yep. Absolutely. And that's the operative word. Well, let, let let's not end on such a serious note. Uh, no, oh my God. So, um, hey, but but let's let's finish up. You were talking a little bit about that. Just, just finish up. Talk. You said you you still uh you're still working. You have a day job, which you obviously are goofing off from. Um, you know, <laughs> hopefully your employer doesn't know what you're up no, to no, right no, this now. This is but
2: a Saturday or Sunday. You pick.
1: Yeah, today's Saturday, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Saturday. That's right. Um, <laughs> What so you have transitioned out, but what what's the work you were alluding to? Some of the work you're doing right now with families and stuff. So let's 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 land on a positive note. Give us a great story that uh, a story of success that you've been you've been around or were able to help impact.
1: Oh, I don't know about helping impact. Uh, One thing I will say is being on the the board for the women's shelter here um, during COVID. I'm sure y'all know this, but domestic violence cases increased.
0: Significantly, uh, yes, significantly. significantly,
1: and it's so sad. Um, again, having been the victim of a of child abuse and a victim of and watching my mother get beat up, um, I have a heart for helping women, and you know it's. I've seen so much success with the board we have here, at our house. They do such good work, uh, uh, bringing women in, helping them. Um, and then getting them out on their own. And it's, and it's hard to do. Um, I go back to that same thing. It is very hard to stand up for yourself when your abuser is your husband or your mom or your dad or your employer or your uh, psychiatrist or doctor or whatever. And so um, I have seen a lot of, of good women step forward and say, um, I've had enough and um i was listening to a song yesterday i don't know if y'all like country music but there's a song by little big town called better man i don't know if if you've ever heard the words if you listen to the words it is about a woman who has escaped an abusive situation um i don't know if it's verbal or physical but the 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 meaning is i wish you had been a better man that could have stepped up and done the right thing and not abused me or whatever and I think it takes a community, uh, a village, if you will, for all of us to, to bind together and give these victims of any kind of abuse, whether it's a, a drug abuse or anything, the courage and give them permission to stand up and say, I've had enough. And and that's what I feel like my job is now, through the books or through my work at the attorney's office or through my work on the board. I want to help people that are the underdogs take a stance and and become um, a victor, if you will.
2: That's uh, Your words of encouragement for empowering women uh, are phenomenal. You know, you're, you're in a leadership position where, unfortunately, because of your past circumstances, you've been there and done that. Um, I I just can't say enough good things about you. Now I put I put Connie on a pedestal. Uh, I gotta tell you, sister, you me, are right. He up. He
0: puts me on a pedestal too. Yeah, he, it's he, called a toilet. Earth just it's a me. toilet.
2: But I mean, you're right. Still a pedestal. <laughs> still a pedestal. <laughs> you're right up there with Connie and my Sherry. It's uh, you're you know your sister, the law enforcement family, uh, a personal friend here. And again, I got to say this because I want to stand on a positive uh, note as well. It's phenomenal what you're doing. And like I said earlier, if you don't remember anything else we say here, I mean, forget all the bullshit that, hi, that, that Morgan and I do, because, I mean, that's how, that's how we are. We're idiots, right? Notice how he started saying Javier first. <laughs> you
0: know, forget all the bullshit sometimes, Javier and sometimes I
2: Sometimes I call Javier or Pablo on stage, but, you know, it's just one of those things you've got to get over. But here's the big, big takeaway from here, and this is what Sherry has been preaching to us there for the past couple of hours, is it's your choice. You choose to be the victor, not the victim. You know, it's, it's horrendous that any of you were victims of anything. But if you are, turn around and make some kind of positive. Look what Sherry's doing. You know, I'm so, just so freaking proud of you, girl. I, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on the show. Uh, for putting up with our bullshit, you know, because, you know, we are idiots, which, you know, I'm okay with, I know what I am.
0: <laughs> but
2: we're, we're,
0: we're, we're, we're low paid, no paid idiots though. So there's no a difference to no
2: paid idiots. There you go.
0: <laughs>
1: well, y'all are great. I thank you so much. I had a lot of help. So any success I have, I do not claim it for myself. Uh, I had a lot of great people like my parents and, uh, and, and y'all and friendship is a lot. One thing about law enforcement is that it is a family and, uh, you know, I I'm a, I love cops and I I uh, I support them 100%. As long as they're right. Now I don't like a bad cops. I don't think anybody likes a bad cop. That's a good cop.
2: Nobody hates a bad cop worse than a good cop.
1: Exactly. So, but I I'm humbled and I thank you so much. I hope your ratings don't go down. <laughs>
0: No, they won't. We we have three verified listeners. That's, That's what right. we know. We have three verified listeners. So if we get four out of this, they, they
2: might be family members. It's okay. They might be family, but it's all right.
0: And if you have multiple personalities like me, I can <laughs> listen to it three times. That counts as three downloads. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that is not a come on. Don't kid me. I'm just kidding, folks. Too. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, no. This this is fun, and this is going to be one for this is going to be epic too because of your story. Your back. That's why it was important. We don't normally get into a lot of detail. Like we did with you on backstory, but that was so important to understand where you started from, where you came, and how far you've come, um, except for the Georgia thing, you know, the Bulldogs. Um, except for that one small glitch in your life about rooting for the Bulldogs, you have been a raving success. Don't give a do shake. You
2: got the look, man. <laughs> rolling
0: them off. You got the look on that one. Oh, I did. I, I, I The finger's about to come up. By the way, I, I like the movie. I, I know which movie you were talking about, about where she, the, the maid was talking about, uh, you know, you is special, you as good. One lesson I learned from that movie, what was the name of it again? The Help. The help. That's right. The help. Don't eat the pie. Don't eat the pie. Yeah, absolutely. Don't yeah. eat the pie. <laughs> yeah. Do not eat the pie. That's right.
2: That's right. You yeah. want to know where your medications come from, and you want to know who made the damn and you pie. You want to know where your pie's coming <laughs> yes, from. Exactly That's right. right.
1: Wow, y'all are this y'all cover have of some a bakery? great lessons to learn. Listen this, this, oh, see, listen, this is we
0: full of lessons. This is education. Uh, I was a lesson for many of my supervisors on what not to do. I trained many supervisors. Yes. Uh, as
1: was I.
0: Well, hey, let's let's bring this to a close. I think this is this is a great episode. We. Um, we will definitely have you back to launch your book, to launch you in the stratosphere. We just want to know, remember the little people when you become big in Hollywood. And, they're, and you know, last question. We'll close on this. They turn your trilogy into a series. They make it for TV or they make a movie out of it. Who plays Gabriella?
1: Oh, I'll tell you uh, there's a, a friend of mine she is she lives in Tennessee we met her when we were uh, in head when I was at headquarters I was a uh, special Operations Division with Derek Maltz is my boss dynamic love man love that man um, her name is Nikki Etheridge if you look her up she was on law and order a couple of times um, she's biracial and so is Gabby she's biracial and I did that on purpose um, I want it to be her, and I've never told her this, so if she watches, listens to this podcast, you'll hear it, but in my mind, when I'm writing, it's not me, um, I, but I would like it to be someone that uh, I admire, and now, don't get me wrong, if Kate Winslet comes along and says, I'm Carrie," <laughs> I would love to play, I'm like, come on, girl, because after Mayor of Easttown, she was phenomenal in that.
0: Yeah, I'd I, she had to learn that, that very unique Pennsylvania accent too. That was interesting.
1: Unbelievable. She was she was just great in that. And um and then of course I've I've told JP that uh you know, I've got several male partners that I would like to males that I would like to pick for his role, but um
0: Okay. Um, we'll close on that. Who 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 is your who is your co star in this? So Nikki for the lead and Who's the co-star?
1: Well, my biggest crush is been Andy Garcia. My whole i love Andy Garcia, but but now I kind of switched to Idris Elba because I'm a, because of The Wire. If you ever saw that, which is one of oh, the yeah. best yeah. ever cop shows
0: up here in Baltimore, which they also filmed Homicide, uh, another great cop show, yeah. Homicide.
1: And I and I, I didn't even know Idris Elba was British until I saw him in something else, and I'm like, what? Because when you when he's playing a stringer in The Wire, you have no idea. Um, so it would be him, but I've got a lot of crushes, uh, you know, on people, but yeah, I would say, um, thank you so much. And I, uh, again, speaking to his, this is, I'd love to see it, see her on camera, but, uh, let me get that book written first (laughs) and uh, one step at a time.
2: Well, you have
0: till December 31st at 1159, we will be doing a check-in on January 1st. That
2: manuscript's got to be ready.
1: Well, if he's listening, he'll be proud. The editor will be proud you said that. So thank you so much, guys. (laughs) All right.
0: Well, everybody, this brings to a conclusion. Kyrie, domine, danes, requiem. This is the end of the podcast. Everybody stay tuned with our new section. Thanks to Alfredo. Stay tuned for the debrief. We told you. We warned you, and in fact, we predicted, like Nostradamus, this was going to be one hell of an episode. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, Steve, there's... I know you said Sherry was worried what people were going to think. Well, let me tell you what people are going to think. They're going to think, what a woman, what a lady, what a person. Um, She has nothing to worry about, nothing to apologize for. This was, by far, I think, from an episode standpoint, one of the most moving episodes I think we've ever done.
2: I just, uh, you know, uh, she... (laughs) <laughs> it's like I said in the show itself, my wife sits on a pedestal in my life. Sherry Foster is right up there on her right-hand side. I'm uh, just so proud of her. I mean, if I'd gone through what she went through, I'm not sure that I would say that on, on, the, on, the, on any interview, not just a podcast. Uh, but that's what I love about Sherry. She puts it right out there. She tells you like it is. And her, her, her position is be the victor, not the victim. You got to love that. You got to love that. She's not letting anybody get her down. She went through uh, horrendous odds of coming out successful in her life. She had uh, her her biological mom told her she was going to be a failure. I mean, you know, good Lord, it was just horrible what she went through. But thank you, Sherry, so much. I mean, God bless you. I love you even more now. And, and, uh, you know, JP, I'm, I'm sure he appreciates what he has. And if he doesn't, Well, I would slap him, but he'd probably kick my ass, so I won't do that. Well,
0: I'll team up with you. We'll go Ben and both slap his ass if he doesn't appreciate (laughs) what he's got. Because she is, I'm telling you. But some of her stories, too, they were funny. But I tell you, it was... The interesting thing was normally we talk about the cases that actually the person has worked themselves. This one was a little different because she was there for it. But when we did our pre-call, we, we decided, hey, this is this is the case. This is the one we want to talk about. And I think we'll, I guarantee you, we'll have her back on to talk about some of the stuff she did with uh, DEA oh, because yeah. there are some good stuff there. But man, but this story, what this piece of crap doctor did to these kids over all these years, how it was swept under the rug. Even though they knew about it, they didn't do anything about it for years. So it's just like, man, you know, what she had to go through and what she persevered and what she, you know, the, just the mere fact, I'll tell you, let me tell you, anybody who fails to report child abuse on kids right, ought to go to prison, Yep. along with the person who did the abuse, because they are enabling this abuse to go on. And in Sherry's case, I'll tell you what made it worse is that people knew. Right. And I get it, it's the South. A lot of people don't want to get involved. But look, you're a member of society. You you have a responsibility to protect the most vulnerable people, whether you wear a badge or not. And so I'm just like I said, the fact that she survived this, went on to do the things she did at, at Winder, at GBI, and then DEA, uh just speaks volumes. And by the way, too, we do have we we are making a public announcement. We are holding her to account with her editor. Her book is due to be done, finished writing, by midnight, December 31st. (laughs) We are going to do a check-in on you, Sherry, and make sure you are holding up your end of the bargain for being on our podcast.
2: Absolutely, and I can't wait for her book to come out. It may be another year or so before it gets out there, but uh, you just know it's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be phenomenal. Just so proud of this young lady. It's too bad
0: you're not going to be able to read it. We'll get you an Audible book. so
2: She'll get me a picture book. talking about she's gonna take crayons don't worry
0: draw big chief (laughs) tablet and crayons remember those from high school anyway guys hey and the other thing we're going to do too going into the new year so this is going to be one of the last ones i think this is the last one yeah before the new year comes out um because we've got so many things that we're recording and we're not sure depending on who is available at that time we had a couple instances where we said somebody was going to be there the next week they weren't we had to go back and re-record you know and, and do some additional work so what we're going to do is just simply leave you by saying thank you guys for you know playing the game with us, you know, we'll leave you with that. But always rest assured, we'll do a very good intro for the ones that come up. Uh, so anyway, I know what's coming up. Maybe, maybe not. We have two or three things that we're going to be doing this next week. But one of the things we will have is we will have an interview from a victim at some point, a victim whose mother and father may have been the victim of a serial killer, actually two serial killers, Otis Tool and Henry Lee Lucas. So we're going to talk to them about that. Steve, you've got some folks lined up for gang stuff. We've got a captain lined up who actually oversaw the investigation into the LAPD Rampart uh, corruption scandal. Yeah, which
2: is, and I'm excited about that, Morgan, because, you know, we've been challenged on social media that, hey, how come we never talk about uh, the bad cops? Well, you already know our opinions, everybody. All our players know our opinions. Just nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. So we're going to bring a good cop on to tell you what took place out there and how it was handled.
0: And this is a guy who, I mean, he took it in the shorts for doing it too. I mean, it impacted him. You know, he's got a heck of a story to tell, but, Look at the end of the day, um, this is, it's you need to have that transparency to have people to build that trust and stuff. So this is going to be a good one because this one is going to be this is going to be less jovial like we normally do. This one's going to be a real serious one, but I think you're going to like it. But anyway, we've got some stuff coming up. Actually, one of the ones we have coming up too, uh, former friend of mine from the state patrol, uh, Mark Comboy, got into a big shootout with some folks who were involved in spree killings. In fact, five or six killings. Uh, They got into a shootout with uh, four suspects. Uh, One of them was killed there at the scene. They took the other three into custody. One of the guys ends up getting executed in Florida later. He ends up winning the Governor's Award from the Highway Patrol. It's only been awarded like 10 times in the entire history of the patrol. So this guy is a stud, Mark Conboy. So we're going to have some great stories like that coming up for you in the new year. And who knows if Murph can get off his ass and deliver— We might even have a star or two.
2: We're trying. We're trying, you know. And I even hit Connie up again this morning. And (laughs) she's. Don't say hit her
0: up. This is, oh, my God. The abuse laws in
2: Florida. You're going to go to prison, Murph. Let me tell you what you hit that woman, you better duck because she's coming back at you with both hands and both feet. But uh, she's still she's just a little bit shy to talk on the radio or, or on a podcast interview and and she's like you know this is this is you and Morgan's thing and and I said honey you you just need to understand everybody wants to hear what it's like to be married to a, a great person like me. Well, then <laughs> then we will not have an episode because we are
0: a we are a nonfiction <laughs> podcast that would be <laughs> fiction.
2: I left you speechless there, didn't I? I left you speechless. <laughs>
0: I'm going to have you wear, I'm going to wire you up. I'm going to have you wear a wire. We're going to do this podcast just as though you're talking to her. We're going to wire you up. We'll get it recorded.
2: Oh, I, don't hit me. Yes, honey. Whatever you say, dear. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, but hey, but
0: guys, we just wanted to say thank you. This is going to close out the year for us, too. Uh, thank you guys very much. We launched June 28th. Uh, we're up to episode 29 on this one, and we're doing most of those are two-parters, So I can't tell you how much we appreciate your support, uh, helping us grow. You know the podcast, grow the listeners and stuff, and it really means a lot. I mean, we put a lot into this. Believe us, every week uh, we're putting a lot into this, trying to find great guests, doing the research, doing the pre calls. You know, getting everybody set up. We ship everybody, almost everybody, equipment because we want to make sure that they sound good on their end. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but we do it all because we love to do it and. You can't see this, but this is me heart me hearting you guys. I heart you. You,
2: know. <laughs> you can't see this. This is me. This is me giving Morgan the finger. <laughs> uh,
0: you you keep again. Your a game is just just dropped since you moved to Florida. But but I can speak on behalf of both of us, and Murph will too. But it's like, hey guys, this has been a great ride so far. So we really appreciate the first six months. This is actually coming up right on six months uh, with doing this. So. We love it. We love, appreciate all your guys' help. And uh, Murph, what kind of uh, sage advice do you have going into
2: the new year? Oh, just uh, keep tuning in here. It's like we, we say, share one, listen to one, share one, rate one, you know, whatever you got to do here, spread the word on Game of Crimes. We want this thing to grow to the point where when we call somebody for an interview, they automatically say yes, because that's who you want to hear. If you've got specific people you want us to, to interview, let us know. Get a hold Rick of Massa
0: was a direct result of somebody on Instagram saying, Hey, it'd be great if you'd get the guy from the LA, you know, somebody from the North Hollywood shootout.
2: Yep. So we're open to suggestions. We have, we probably on our list, we probably have at least a year's worth of people to interview already, but it's nothing set in stone. So as requests come in, we'll do our best to honor your request. Uh, and to echo what Morgan said, thank you so, so much for supporting us here in, in 2021, we're hoping that 2022 will be a much better year for all of us, not just on the podcast, but let's hope this damn pandemic goes away. We can get back to travel. And we can get back together with our families. Don't let politicians or the media tell you what to believe, everybody. Look forward to seeing you all next year.
0: All right. And thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes.
2: Happy New Year! Happy New Year!